Good morning. Welcome to all of you who are here, those of you that are joining us online. I'm so glad that you're here with us today. Um, I don't know if it's an issue of age, but I have found that it's kind of funny lately uh, that in these recent days, I've become more and more aware of how long I've been in ministry and how long I've been here at Warsaw. Uh, Next month, I will have finished 29 years here at Warsaw. Uh, What that means, however, is that you have heard a whole lot of sermons from me. Some, Some good, and some I probably should have left in the file cabinet. But uh, uh, I come this morning, though, with a sense that God has ordained our gathering. I come with a sense that God has a purpose for us being here together today. And that what uh, I have to share, I believe, is from His heart to us. And it is very appropriate and relevant to the times in which we live So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray before we actually get into it. And I don't know, how many of you guys remember as kids, the teacher would have you do a little song, and it would go something like, head in. Now, do you know, I just realized recently that it was teaching us the body parts, but it was also making us exercise. I didn't realize that. Well, what I would like you to do is something similar. I would like you to take one hand and place it upon your head by your ear and the other hand by your heart. Where we typically say our heart is. It's actually more central, but whatever. And what I would like us to pray is to recognize that God says, let those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit's saying to the church. So I'm going to pray that God would give us ears to hear and that what would come into our ears would actually impact our brain but also take our heart because we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, not just our mind. So would you hold your ear and your heart? Father, in Jesus' name, I again affirm the truth that if all that is shared is my words, even my thoughts, it doesn't amount to much. But God, if you would breathe upon it, if you would cause your spirit to blow upon the words that are used as imperfect as they are, as incomplete as they are, if you, O God, would impregnate these words with your presence, transformation could occur today. More than information, we would be conformed to your image. Lord, let us hear. Let us have hearing ears. Not just to listen but to take it in and to appropriate it to our lives. Let our hearts be soft today that we would be ripe soil to receive the implanted Word of the living God today. We pray it in the name of Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. My title this morning is Overcoming the Temptation to Tolerate the Enemy. There it is. It's up on the screen for you. Overcoming the temptation to tolerate the enemy. But more specifically, I want to talk to you this morning about the temptation to tolerate the spirit of affliction. Now, let's just be honest. 
How many of you have awakened over these last five months? And maybe, maybe you've been a little bit uh, achy. Maybe you've even had a fever. Or maybe you've found yourself coughing a bit during the daytime. How many of you have had the thoughts enter your mind, oh, I hope it's not COVID-19? Some of you are honest. Um, how many of you have a family history of medical maladies that seems to run in your family and you've wondered when that thing is going to actually catch up and take you? You know, it just kind of runs in our family. Uh, I want to suggest to you that those kinds of thoughts, and I know this sounds strong, but I believe it's true, those kinds of thoughts are the whispers of hell. I believe that God has far better for us than that. I believe our inheritance in God is a certainty. Because as we've sung again and again, the words on the screen, He has already won the victory. Our position needs to be to enter into and walk in the victory that He has already purchased for us. So I believe God has far better than those whispers of hell and the subtle pressure that we live under to listen to those whispers. Would you open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 5 if you have them with you? If not, the words will be up on the screen in front of you. Mark chapter 5, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Mark 5, 1. Mark's the second gospel in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you're going into the New Testament. Mark 5, 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he, Jesus, had come out of the boat, immediately, say immediately. immediately. No, say it loudly. Immediately. immediately. There met him out of the tombs. A man with an unclean spirit. Now, I like to walk. Some of you guys know that. And one of the parts of my walk that I actually like is I like walking the cemetery. And I know other people have said that's kind of macabre, but it's not for me. I love thinking about the lives that have lived long before I came on the scene. And they remind me that it's not all about me. But I have never once had somebody come out of the tomb screaming and yelling. That's what's going on here. There met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, for Jesus said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he answered saying, 
My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, let me first of all address a question that often arises when we look at texts like this. I am often, over the years, been asked the question, is it possible for a Christian to be possessed by a demon? Can a Christian have a demon? And my response is almost always the same. Well, I guess you can if you want to, but why would you want to? My point is this. Although I believe, in fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, he speaks about principalities and powers and rulers and wickedness in high places. He's speaking about the demonic realm, but he's speaking in Ephesians to Christians. So I think the point ought to be not whether or not we wanted to get into an argument about whether a Christian can have a demon or not. I think we ought to recognize, though, that demons are real. They are around us. They are not people. They might very well possess or influence people. But here's my point. Demonic realms have the ability to distract, detour, and distress Christians. And we ought to be praying that God in His grace gives us more and more freedom from all demonic influence in life and those around us. We all need greater levels of freedom. And so whether or not you can be possessed, I don't think that's even worth arguing about. I think we ought to just recognize, God, I personally need more freedom. Do you need more freedom? I do. I want to change more and more. I want to be more like Jesus. Don't you? So that's really what this is about. This is not about whether or not Christians can have demons. This is about more and more freedom. The Scripture tells us in 1 John 3, Jesus came to destroy the works of the evil one in your life and in mine. So, now I've been, I said to you next month, I'll have been in Warsaw 29 years, but we have been serving in ministry for almost 40 years now. And after pastoring for just a little while, I began to notice a trend in our family for Karen and I. I noticed that um, 
it seems like if we were going to have problems, if there was going to be issues between Cabron and I, or if there was going to be sickness, most often it seemed to be aggravated. It seemed to increase more and more on Saturday night and on Sunday morning. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that it seems like though you can get your kids up and ready for school Monday through Friday, on Sunday it's like havoc is wreaked in your house. It's like they get up every morning without a problem. Saturday morning they're up and they're going for it. But on Sunday morning, I don't feel good. I don't want to get up. I got a headache. Well, where's it hurt? Right here. Or how many of you, if you're honest, how many of you have found that there have been tensions arising in your homes on Saturday night and Sundays? If, if you're going to have a problem, it's in your car on your way to church on Sunday morning. And I began to notice that this trend was true not only for Karen and I, but for other people in our church. Uh, several people in our congregations would tell us that they noticed that Sunday seemed more filled with stress and strife than any other day of the week. Uh, on other days, the kids would get up fine, but on Sunday, they woke up grumpy. I believe that's a tactic of the enemy. It's a tactic not only to make us feel worse because of affliction, because of either sickness or because of broken relationships around us, but I think it's also a tactic of the enemy to keep us from joining together with the other saints of God and being able to hear the Word of God, worship God together, and be able to be ministered to by God. I think it's a tactic of the enemy. And there is a tendency in all of us to just accept that as the status quo. That's just what life is like. Things happen to all of us. Well, pastor, everyone gets sick once in a while. But don't you notice that the enemy's tactic is to keep us from gathering together? I don't care whether it's the pandemic or whether it's the common cold. The enemy has a tactic to keep us from joining together as God's people and be able to worship God and receive ministry from His Spirit together. One of the tactics of the enemy, though, is to make us think that because it happens to all of us, it's common to all of us, we just have to accept it as being our common lot. It's just, well, pastor, everyone gets the flu during cold season. Or everybody in my family seems to get asthma, so it's not shocking that I would begin to have these breathing problems. Everybody in my family has, you name it. In fact, when you go to the doctor, what, one of the things they do, they take a family history because they want to find out what runs in your family. And it would be really easy to think that because it runs in your family, it ought to run in you. And you forget that you've been born into another family. The family of God. Um, my father died of cancer at the age of 61. And I, I confess, there were times during that time when I began to wonder as I got closer and closer to that age, what about me? Yet yeah, here I am, I've outlived my father in terms of years, feeling good, feeling healthy, and, and suddenly it began to dawn on me, I don't have to live my life based upon my father's experience. I am my own person, born again of God, saved by His Spirit, 
and I have the right to expect that the inheritance that he has promised me is mine. And that includes health and strength in my body. Uh, I believe the enemy can take that weakness, though, of our human flesh, and he can exploit it for his own purposes. And that's really what I'm talking to you about today. I want to be clear, I'm not advocating for some kind of special faith formula. I've had people say to me, uh, when I've said things like, well, you know, they'll say, how are you doing today? They say, well, you know, I got a headache today. Oh, don't say that. Because once you say that, you give the enemy power to give it to you. I think that's trite and it's shallow. I think if I look at the Bible, I read how the saints of old were actually honest in their confession. They would confess their struggles. But I think the other side of that coin is just as dangerous. To just say you have a headache and that's it, I think only leaves you with a headache. I think it's okay to say, I have a headache today. But I think it's also important that we recognize that we must battle for health, for strength, for energy in our bodies. So it's okay to say, I have a headache, but I think we have to also say, God is my healer. I'm going to believe God for health and healing in my body. So it's two sides of the same coin. Now, what I want to do today is I want to give you four strategies or four principles that I see for us personally as we battle against this temptation to tolerate the enemy, four strategies or four principles that we need to have in our lives based upon the text that I have just read. The first principle is this. For those of you that are taking notes, it's called the principle of resistance. And it says this, For every advancement of God's kingdom, there is a counterattack of hell's forces. In the passage, we see in the person of Jesus, the kingdom of God was invading that area. He no sooner arrives, he steps out of the boat onto the land, than verse 2 says, immediately there met him a man from the tombs. Now, in our reading today, it says he fell down and he worshipped Jesus. But the word that's used there for worship is the Greek word proskuneo, proskuneo. And it literally means this. I put the definition up for you to see. To kiss like a dog licking his master's hand. In other words, this wasn't some act of adoration. This wasn't him worshiping Jesus. This was him bowing down, recognizing you're greater than I am. That's the demons within the man, recognizing who Jesus is. So though it might have looked like worship, his demeanor and his words betray it. What he was basically saying is, what are you doing here? Leave us alone with this man. What I want you to see, though, is that for every advancement of the kingdom of God in your life, Hear this, for every advancement of the kingdom of God in your life, including perhaps what God might do in you through the preaching of His Word today, the enemy is going to mount a counterattack. The enemy is going to try to come against that advancement in your life. So I'm saying it to you so that you don't act shocked and be dismayed when it happens. How many of you have come out believing God has actually met with you? God has met with you in a church service. He's done something powerful in you. 
And then you get in your car, you start going home, and something happens. Maybe your wife says, uh, you're going over the speed limit a little bit too much, honey. And you look at her and you say, uh, excuse me, I'm driving the car, not you. Let me worry about my speed. And the rest of the way home, it's like, oh, you just met with God. What do you think is going on? Who do you think wants to cause division between you and your spouse? Who wants to destroy your marriage more than anyone else? You need to recognize that for every advancement of God's kingdom, there's a counterattack of the enemy. And you ought to be prepared for it. The Scripture tells us we are not ignorant of His tactics. Let's not be ignorant. Excuse me. You need to also recognize that you bear the presence of God inside of you. Let me say it again. You bear the presence of God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of God, you bear not just His image, but His presence inside of you. And everywhere you step, you carry that presence. So don't be shocked if in the workplace, don't be shocked if at school, don't be shocked if even in your home there are attacks. Because you come bearing the presence of God every bit as much as Jesus did. The second guiding principle I want you to see, the first was resistance. The second is rationalization. God's benevolent purposes will be twisted by the adversary. Look at verse 7. He cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? So he recognizes who it is. I implore you. Now this is demons speaking through the man. I implore you by God. Talk about ironic. These are people who rebelled against God. But now they're saying, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Can you believe the audacity? Here are these Demons, a legion of them. I don't know how many it is. Some say a thousand, some said more. But here's this legion of demons who have tormented this man for years. In fact, Luke says it was for a long time, for many years. They've been tormenting him. Jesus comes on the scene and they have the audacity to suggest that Jesus freeing this man is being mean to the demons. That's what the enemy does all the time. He tries to twist God's character. He tries to make it as if there have been times in your life and in mine, I'm sure, when you have not felt well, when you have been really sick, and you know that God can do anything. Nothing is impossible with God. You know God loves you. And then there's this little voice inside that whispers, if God loves me so much and He can do anything, Why doesn't He heal me? I want to suggest, those are valid questions, but the enemy takes and twists it and says, if He really loved you, He would heal you. Or even worse, the enemy will say, you know, God loves you whether you're well or not, so you should stop praying for healing altogether. In fact, you should learn how to just bear up under it bravely. You should be able to just put up with it. And maybe if you put up with it well, you'll give God glory. So just suck it up, honey. 
That's the kind of thing the enemy does. He comes in, he twists things. And then one step worse. The enemy comes and says, I can make your life miserable. So you just leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. I've actually had Christians say to me, I've made a pact with the devil. My pact is this. I'll leave you alone if you leave me alone. I want to suggest to you there is never one moment of time, not one millisecond of time, when the enemy has kind thoughts towards you. There's not one moment in time when the enemy wants to do well by you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to kill you. He wants to steal your inheritance. There is nothing about this that the enemy wants to do that is going to bless you or make you happy. The devil has never, never meant well towards you. So don't try to get along with him at all. It's interesting. In our reading, the Scripture says, the demon said, don't send us out of the country. But in Luke, it says, don't send us into the abyss. They knew that Jesus had the authority to give them an early appointment with hell and they didn't want it. So I am suggesting to you, you can't make an agreement with the devil at all. You need to know his strategy. He takes God's character and he twists it to his own ends. He makes you think, just like in the garden, that God is not looking out for your best. He doesn't really love you. When in fact, you know in your heart of hearts, God does love you. My third point is called the principle of rulership. The overthrow of the adversary requires confrontation and the identification of his tactics. <clears throat> first, I want to look at the confrontation, which is first and foremost in the person of Christ. Luke 8.27 says, As soon as Jesus steps on the land, the enemy realized that in the person of Christ there was a threat to his power. So he comes running at Jesus, but as he gets close, even the enemy, the demons themselves, cannot stand before Jesus. Every time we walk in somewhere and speak in his name, in his person, every time we say, in the name of Jesus, and, get this, move and act in accordance with and submission to that name, we have established a battleground. Now, the reason why I added, you can't just say, we sang this morning, in the name of Jesus, but I watch people just flippantly say, in the name of Jesus, and yet they don't live their lives in submission or in accordance to that name. And they think they can use it like abracadabra. Open sesame. It's like a magic formula. There's another section in Acts 19, verse 11, which is an interaction between some other demons. And it says this, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, those are people who were trained to cast out demons, Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. There were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. 
And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I want you to get this. This is not some kind of magic formula that every time you face confrontations, you just say, in the name of Jesus, be gone. You have to choose to live your life in submission to God for the name of Jesus, which is over your life, to actually work. It's not enough just to use it as a password into some secret. You have to live in accordance. But as a true follower of Jesus, you bear the person of Christ, the person of His triumph, the person who said, I have the keys of hell and of death. You bear all of that in your person so that when you come up against the enemy, you're not little puny you against big enemy. You stand in the person of Jesus Christ. I can remember um, as a little kid, uh, this was in the first house I can remember in Palmyra, New York. And uh, I lived in one room with my two sisters at the time. I had the top bunk and my two sisters were on the bottom bunk. And I can remember waking up one night, and I knew nothing about God, but I remember waking up one night, laying in my bed, feeling an evil presence in the room. And I looked over at the door, and I could see what looked like an apparition. Now, I am convinced that that was the enemy. But as a little kid, I was just scared to death. I took my blankets and I hid my head over. I didn't understand at the time that I had authority over the enemy. And at that time, as a little kid, I probably didn't. I didn't know anything about God. My family hadn't become Christians. But I can tell you that now, when we face the enemy, we have the ability, yes, to declare his name, but to declare that in his person dwelling within me, I have authority over every dark thing the enemy wants to do. But we're not only to confront the enemy, I said we're to identify his tactics. I have watched um, well-meaning believers, even in this church, believe and say that until I know the name of the demon, we can't do anything. We need to know what demon we're dealing with. As if somehow God needs some kind of special information and until then His hands are tied. I want to suggest to you, this isn't about a formula. This is about discernment. It's knowing what you're dealing with in the person's life. There have been many times, and I'm sure it's true for others here, there have been many times that we have gone to pray for somebody and they're, they're coming forward maybe for uh, some issue, some malady in their lives. And as we go to pray, we can feel at times like God whispers something to us, gives us some discernment, not only about what they're dealing with, but what's behind it that's actually controlling it. Maybe fear or guilt or shame or lust or unforgiveness or bitterness. Now, I have to tell you that even though God gives us that, we don't necessarily just say, well, God shows me that you've got a spirit of lust. No, we're going to pray a lot more sensitively because we don't want to embarrass or in any way expose a dear friend. So we might pray it sensitively or we might not even pray it out loud. We might just pray it within our own spirit. I have a friend who used to do this regularly. He used to put his hands over their ears and pray it quietly so they couldn't hear him. I think it's a matter of discernment but also respect. Not respecting the demonic realm, but respecting the one for whom you're praying. 
We want to pray into the specific arena of bondage that we feel God is showing us that they're dealing with. And you don't have to go into some kind of major mode like an exorcist. How many of you guys remember Linda Blair in the old exorcist movie? We're not talking about that. That's not what we're talking about. Sometimes it's just merely declaring God's presence over their life, God's name over their lives, and setting them free. It doesn't have to be shouting. doesn't have to be weird. It's just saying, in the name of Jesus, we declare, He sets you free. Whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. This issue in your life no longer has to hold you in bondage. You have been set free. The fourth point is this. The principle of release. Deliverance brings a new authority, a regal stature, and capacity for ministry. Now, I want you to listen to the contrast here between these verses in the same passage. The first says this, He had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains. The chains had been pulled apart by him. The shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. Night and day he was in the mountains and in the tomb crying out, cutting himself with stones. That's one picture of this man. The second picture is in verse 15. They came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed, had the legion, sitting and clothed in his right mind. Unlike what the demons suggested, what Jesus actually did was set the man free and gave him a position in life. He was clothed and in his right mind. And I, I want you to hear me. I know some of you aren't necessarily going to agree with me, and I know there's different ways to approach this. But I want to suggest that arguing politics won't accomplish setting anyone free from the enemy's holds. I want to suggest to you that demanding your American rights won't free anyone. Not in their souls. Not where real freedom matters. I want to suggest to you that debating which doctor you should listen to isn't going to set anybody free. The only one that can truly set people free is Jesus. So that when all of this stuff is going on around us, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's talk more about Jesus than politics. Let's talk more about the Word of God than Dr. Fossey. Let's talk more about God's kingdom than the American politics. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came on a scene and He made His emphasis. The presence of God comes to set you free. In fact, if you read the Scripture, Jesus got in a boat, went across the sea, set this man free, and He goes right back. He went solely to set one person free. That's what He did that day. Now, in this particular case, we've been looking at an intense demonic possession. But it doesn't always look like that. Sometimes it just looks like bondage in our lives. Things that we're struggling with that we want to be free of. Um, I believe the devil wants to keep us in bondage. And there are some of you here today who know what I mean. There's things in your life that you have been fighting for a long time. Things you've wanted to be free of. Things you've struggled against. And I want to suggest to you that I believe the presence of Jesus is here today to set you free. That He comes to set the captives free. That's what he declared from the very beginning of his ministry, and that's what he does all throughout his ministry. Are there places in your life where you have tried again and again to get free of, and it feels like it's to no result? Do you find yourself going back to old patterns again and again? 
Are there areas of continuing bondage, of self-destructive behavior that you want to be free of today? I believe Jesus wants to set us free, myself included. Maybe it's in your thought life. Maybe it's in your behavior. Maybe it's your words or your tone. I believe Jesus has come to set the captives free today. Now, if you go on with the story, I said he ends with a regal status. The account ends with Jesus commissioning this man, this freed man, to minister to his friends and family. And I believe that God wants to free you to minister to your friends and family. That wherever you go, you carry the presence of God. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand with me for a moment. Maintaining your safe distancing and all that kind of stuff. Stand if you would. And then would you just close your eyes? I, I want you to be able to be honest. The principle, the strategy that we saw today is one of resistance every time we draw near to God. There's going to be resistance, including today. There's rationalization. The enemy wants to come and twist God's good character, his intentions towards you. The principle of rulership that you carry the presence of God. His presence is here. He rules over all bondages. And then the principle of release. God sets us free to be truly who He called us to be and to minister His presence to those around us. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, I want you to just admit to yourself, are there areas that you need freedom in? Maybe it's anger. Maybe there's times when it just seems like even though you say, okay, I want to do better, you, you just find yourself erupting at times. And it's hurting your marriage, hurting your family. Maybe, as I said earlier, maybe it is lust. You find yourself in a difficult place. You know, stuff goes on. You, you, you commit to God, I'll never do that again. And then it just, again. And under pressure, it seems worse. Maybe it's even guilt over stuff. Shame. We sing the songs about shame having no hold on me, but it still feels that way. I don't know what it is for you. What is the area that you know God wants you to have greater freedom? Maybe it's even legalism. You find yourself going that way more often than the way of grace. What is it in your life that God would like to see you set free from. And I want to pray over you. Most often we would probably do some level of personal ministry, but because of our situation, I'm going to pray. But because we bear the presence of God and because God is in the room today, He is going to do the same for you as if someone laid hands on you. You're going to feel the hands of Jesus upon your life. So, if you're willing, you could just lift your hands and just say, God, I submit myself to you today. To you, Jesus. Father, right now, we've read Your Word. Your Word is life. It's peace. It's truth. More than all of the other news out there, Your Word is truth. And You came to set captives free. To set at liberty those who have been in bondage in jails. You have come to break off of us the holds of the enemy. Whether it be in our thoughts, our words, our behavior, Wherever it is, Father, we pray that You would set Your people free. 
in the same way that you called Moses to lead your people into freedom, Father, today, bring your people into that place of freedom in you. Let every bondage, every lie of the enemy be broken off of your servants today. That we would be clothed and in our right mind, clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus, and in our right mind, the mind of Christ within us. And that we would become ministering agents of your glory, of your presence everywhere we go. And Father, let us never give place to the enemy. Let us not go back when he comes and he says, "Yeah, oh, you just did it again. You say, yes, but that's no longer who I am. That's not what I'm about. I repent of that again and I receive freshly the presence of God. The forgiveness of God, yes. But the presence of God. The presence of His glory. Father, we're not going to let the enemy whisper lies into our minds anymore. He's not going to use our minds and our hearts as His playground. We're going to walk in the liberty You have purchased for us with Your very lifeblood. That which You paid for on the cross, we receive gladly today. So break off of us, Father, those lies. Because that's what they are. They're lies. The enemy, we know, has no power because Jesus has already won the victory. So all he can do is lie to us. And so, Father, today we see the bars melting away, chains falling off of us. We see your grace and your glory coming in. Father, I don't know, obviously, exactly what heaven looks like. But I believe that it is full of Your glory. Full of the light of Your presence. Lord, let that be true in our lives. Let that be a, an experience that we have where we meet with You moment by moment, day by day. Set Your people free. And Father, we will give glory to You we will give honor to You and we will represent You in Your name everywhere we go. That's our heart commitment, Father, as a follower of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray it in Your holy name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great rest of your day.